Section 9 of The Reign of Queen Anne, Volume 2, by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 29. The Spectator. On Thursday, March 1st, 1711, an event took place which was destined to make an abiding impression on the history of English literature. This event was the first appearance of The Spectator, a periodical which made as distinct an impression upon English journalism of that time as was produced, although in a very different way, by the publication of Punch during the early part of Queen Victoria's reign. The Spectator was not by any means the first of the journals composed altogether of bright literary essays, humorous and satirical, for the most part, on living men and manners, nor was Punch by any means the first of English comic newspapers. But The Spectator and Punch alike made a distinct fame, and each is always regarded as the highest illustration of that order of literature which it professed to illustrate. The first issue of The Spectator opens with some lines which may appropriately be quoted here as an excuse for a brief story of the creation of the journal and the men who created its fame. I have observed, says this opening essay, that a reader seldom peruses a book with pleasure till he knows whether the writer of it be a black or a fair man, of a mild or choleric disposition, married or a bachelor, with other particulars of the like nature that conduce very much to the right understanding of an author. Probably the writer of the essay would not have been prepared gravely to defend the opinion that men and women seldom enjoy the reading of a book unless they know a good deal about the private history of the man who wrote it, but the writer of the essay found it convenient to start this ingenious proposition in order to get an opportunity for a delightful imaginary narrative concerning the promoters of the spectator. In this narrative there come to life some of the most fascinating figures known to English literature. For the moment, however, we shall follow the impulse given by the opening sentence of the spectator with the object only of describing in voracious record the man who was mainly concerned in the production and the maintenance of this famous journal. The name of Joseph Addison has been already mentioned more than once in this history and is indeed brought into immortal association with the reign of Queen Anne. Addison was born in 1672, was the son of a rector in Wilshire, was educated at various schools, Charterhouse among them, and at Queen's College and Magdalen College, Oxford. He took the literature at an early age and was fortunate enough to obtain the powerful patronage which was then almost absolutely necessary to anything like a prosperous career for a young beginner. He was able to spend four years in travel through the continent, chiefly in France, Italy, the Netherlands, and the German-speaking states, and thus obtained inexhaustible stores of observation to stimulate and feed his brilliant and genial, ever kindly, albeit satirical humor. His natural tastes were such as to lead him into a variety of fields, and he seemed for a while to feel equal delight in them all. He cultivated the muses, as the phrase would have gone in his day. He loved to write poems, he was fond of music, 
and actually produced an opera, as at a later period he produced a comedy and a tragedy. He enjoyed describing his travels in Italy, he developed a taste for historical narrative, he reveled in essay-writing, and he was drawn into political and parliamentary life, in which afterwards he came to hold more than one high official place. Now the man who attempts success in so many fields is likely in most cases to prove nothing more than that he has been endowed by malign destiny with the fatal gift of the amateur. In other words, that he is ever trying new fields of labor and never finds any which seems especially his own. Joseph Addison was saved from such a fate by the fact that he possessed that distinctly creative gift, which we call genius, the gift that always finds, sooner or later, its own special work to do. The world now regards, and we venture to think will ever regard, Joseph Addison as the chief writer in The Spectator, and not as the author of the campaign or of Cato, nor as the member of Parliament, and not as the Secretary of State. No literary essays in any language have ever surpassed or are ever likely to surpass some of those which Addison contributed to the pages of The Spectator. His principal colleague in the work was Richard Steele, afterwards Sir Richard Steele, one of the most brilliant figures in the life and the literature of this time. Steele was an Irishman by birth. He was born in Dublin, where his father practiced as an attorney in the early part of the year 1672, only a few weeks before the birth of Addison. His father and mother both died while he was yet a child, and he came into the care of an uncle who was secretary to the Duke of Ormond. The Duke took an interest in the boy and sent him to Charterhouse School, where he came for the first time into the companionship of Addison. Then he was sent to pursue his studies at Oxford, and under the sudden impulse for a military life, he enlisted in the Horse Guards during 1694. Steele was lucky in finding patronage from the very first. Some of the verses which he published on the funeral of Queen Mary attracted the attention of a noble lord who appointed him his private secretary and afterwards obtained for him an ensigncy in the Coldstream Guards. His love of literary work still held possession of him, and he tried his hand at writing plays. In the meantime, he had fought a duel, severely wounding his man, and this exploit appears to have brought him into a penitent mood from which came his production, the Christian hero. Then he varied the monotony of the devotional mood by writing a play, gave up for a time his military pursuits, and wrote another and yet another play. His dramatic works were successful enough to encourage him to further efforts in the same direction, but once again he found it convenient to diversify his existence by becoming captain in a regiment of foot and further by engaging in the then somewhat popular researches and experiments for the discovery of the Philosopher's Stone. He did not discover the Philosopher's Stone, but he married a widow who had large estates in Barbados, and it may be that in this way he did succeed in turning something into gold. Soon afterwards he was made gentleman-in-waiting to Queen Anne's husband, Prince George of Denmark. His wife lived but for a short time after their marriage, 
and Steele did not devote himself for long to the disconsolate state of a widower, but contracted a love-match with a beautiful young woman to whom he was tenderly attached. Steele, still a comparatively young man, had by this time seen a good deal of life, had studied humanity from various points of view, and ought to have been peculiarly qualified for the kind of literary work which concerns itself especially with men and manners. He attracted the attention of Harley, who gave him the post of gazetteer with a salary of three hundred a year, and at a later period he was appointed commissioner of stamps. He it was who originated the Tatler newspaper, and in its production he had the helping hand of Joseph Addison. The Tatler was, in a certain sense, the precursor of the spectator, but, as we shall see presently, the spectator started on a distinct and original plan of its own, which had not been foreshadowed by any previous project of newspaper essay writing. There is much difference of opinion as to the original author of the plan. There are contemporary chroniclers who distinctly maintain that the original idea came up in the mind of Addison, and that he communicated and explained it to Steele, who was taken with it instantly, and was delighted to render it all the service in his power. On the other hand, there are writers of the same time who insist with emphasis and with assurance of precise information that Steele first conceived the idea, and that Addison cordially adopted it and lent it all his help. It does not much matter now whether this friend or the other was the author of the original idea, but considering the initiative taken by Steele as founder of the Tatler, it seems not unreasonable to suppose that it was he also who became possessed of the happy inspiration which led to the starting of the spectator. It is quite certain that the names of both friends must remain alike and inseparably associated with the spectator in literary history. Addison and Seale were the Gemini, the heavenly twins, to adopt a more modern literary phrase, whose light illumined that generation and many later generations through the medium of the brilliant and successful journal. The spectator had a very peculiar plan of its own, the natural and ordinary form for such a newspaper to take would have been to devote itself merely to a series of essays on the doings and manners, the fashions and follies, the public and private life of the days to which the essayist belonged. But the spectator was not content to issue its daily essays in this disconnected, and so far as the public was concerned, anonymous form. The spectator called into being a whole set of figures, the dramatis personae of its performance, the men who were to lecture and instruct the town as to its whims, its follies, and its errors, and each of whom was to maintain his own point of view from which to direct his preachings. The idea was to create a spectator club and to make the ways and the characteristics of its leading members perfectly well known to the town, as if these members had been living creatures who might be met in St. James's Street or the Temple Gardens, or in some country seat on any day of the year. These chosen personages were to favor the world with their own peculiar opinions concerning everything going on in the regions of society, and their expositions were intended to draw forth expressions of approval or opposition, 
counter-criticisms, or congenial disquisitions from society in general. Much in the constructive scheme of the spectator might have suggested the development of the society novel, which made its most lasting manifestation at a later day by the issue of Vanity Fair. Addison and Steele worked together in the closest literary companionship and with perfect harmony for the daily production of their unique spectator. The essay which one had written was commonly touched and retouched by the other, and it is not always easy to be quite sure whether any was the exclusive work of either of the gifted writers. Some critics are found to differ even as to the original creation of certain of the figures who had principal parts in this marvelous drama of talk without action. There has been interesting and animated discussion as to the original parentage of Sir Roger de Coverley and of Will Honeycomb, some claiming the creation absolutely for Addison and some absolutely for Steele. The controversy now seems to have scarcely a more practical interest, even for literary mankind, than a dispute as to the individual part taken by Beaumont and by Fletcher in the dramas which bear the associated names of these two authors. Many men of literary mark, whose names are still remembered by the reading public, were frequent contributors to the spectator. One man who ranks among the immortals of the reign, Alexander Pope, was actually a contributor, but he cannot be reckoned amongst those who illumined its pages by frequent flashes of light. He published his famous Messiah in one of the numbers of The Spectator, and for another number he wrote a short article which contained a few verses. Some critics have maintained that they could identify other articles as coming from his pen, but we believe that these assertions belong to the field of conjecture only, or are founded merely on what is called intrinsic evidence, an evidence very little to be relied upon when a great author has made his style an object of enthusiastic imitation. Dr. Thomas Parnell is known to have contributed two somewhat allegorical and fanciful essays to the pages of the favored periodical. Parnell was the author of a poem called The Hermit, which was much admired in his day and is but faintly remembered in ours. Indeed, it would be hardly quite unfair to his literary fame to say that in our day his name is chiefly remembered because of the conspicuous position taken in public life by more lately born members of his family. Thomas Parnell was born in Dublin, studied in Trinity College, and entered into holy orders. He was, however, Irish only by birth and belonged to an old Cheshire family. Sir John Parnell, a member of the same family, played a distinguished part in the Irish Parliament of Grattan's day. Sir Henry Parnell took a prominent part in an English Parliament of a later day, and the name of another member of the family, Charles Stuart Parnell, is likely to be long remembered in political history. Besides all these writers who may be regarded as professional literary men, the outer public itself furnished many contributors to the columns of the spectator. The conductors of the paper freely invited and cordially encouraged such contributions. The object 
was to obtain expressions of opinion from all classes and orders on any subject of interest which was then engaging attention. Every letter sent in was carefully read, and if it was found to have in it anything worth printing, it was published at the earliest possible moment. All such contributions were gone over by Addison or by Steele, more often by Steele, and any letter that appeared deserving of a place in the paper was touched up and put into better shape if it were found to require such remodeling. In rare cases the letters were given to the public exactly as their writers had penned them, nor was this always a tribute to the excellence of their literary style. It happened now and then that some contributors, sadly wanting in literary education, put forth ideas of sound common sense, with an emphasis and a bluntness which became all the more telling from the homely phraseology in which they were clothed, and sometimes, too, they were so exquisitely absurd that to publish them exactly as they were written was the most effective way of showing up the absurdity which they strove to defend. Steele took a special delight in going over these contributions from the outer world, and it was said of him by one of his colleagues that he had often, by a few happy touches, converted a commonplace little epistolary homily into an essay sparkling with humorous illustration. The fame of the spectator began to spread abroad everywhere. The paper became the fashion, and it was the right sort of thing that everybody who claimed to be anybody in what was considered the best society should be able to talk about the spectator, to quote from its essays, and to argue about its arguments. Fine ladies were delighted to show their familiarity with its contents, and some went so far as to send contributions to it, and were so fortunate as to be able to show their contributions in print to their acquaintances. Over 20,000 copies of the paper were sometimes sold in a single day, and to those who bear in mind the limited extent of the reading population just then, this fact alone will seem a wonderful tribute to the success of a journal which did not even profess to be a newspaper and chiefly gave out humorous sketches, satirical essays, and weekday sermons. Into the remotest parts of Great Britain and Ireland the spectator found its way, and it was largely read and discussed by men and women of education in France and in other parts of the European continent. It certainly is not too much to say that the story of the spectator forms one of the most delightful and most important chapters in English literature. Each volume of the spectator as it came out had prefixed to it the name of some eminent person to whom the more or less editor of the work professed to feel himself under particular obligations. The first volume was thus dedicated to John, Lord Summers. None, says this first dedication, but a person of a finished character can be a proper patron of a work which endeavors to cultivate and polish human life by promoting virtue and knowledge and by recommending whatever may be either useful or ornamental to society. Then the writer goes on to say, I know that the homage I now pay you is offering a kind of violence to one who is as solicitous to shun applause as he is assiduous to deserve it. But, my lord, this is perhaps the only particular in which your prudence will be always disappointed, 
while justice, candor, equanimity, a zeal for the good of your country, and the most persuasive eloquence in bringing over others to it, are valuable distinctions, you are not to expect that the public will so far comply with your inclinations as to forbear celebrating such extraordinary qualities. The second volume is addressed to Charles Lord Halifax, the third to the Right Honourable Henry Boyle, and the fourth to the Duke of Marlborough. This last dedication begins with an ingeniously graceful fashion of compliment. As it is natural to have a fondness for what has cost us much time and attention to produce, I hope your grace will forgive my endeavour to preserve this work from oblivion by affixing to it your memorable name. There are dedications to the Earl of Wharton, the Earl of Sunderland, and to Mr. Methuen, the author of the famous treaty with Portugal. And there is a dedication to one purely imaginary person, William Honeycomb, Esquire, who began life in the pages of The Spectator, and has not yet ceased to live in the memories of all with whom the reading of delightful literature is a pleasure beyond price. This dedication is in itself a most charming little essay, full of humor and frolicsome fancy. It is made up of affection, admiration, and genial, kindly banter, and the object of the dedication, if he were really a living man, and capable of appreciating the happy union of badinage and compliment, might be pleased to see a lifelike picture of himself with all his good qualities and all his personal weaknesses blending into a very harmonious and yet a very realistic whole. We may now say something about the story of the spectator itself, for it is, in fact, a story with a purpose. The first number begins with a personal description by the supposed author's own hand of the spectator himself. I designed this paper, he says, and my next as prefatory discourses to my following writings, and shall give some account in them of the several persons that are engaged in this work. As the chief trouble of compiling, digesting, and correcting will fall to my share, I must do myself the justice to open the work with my own history. Then he goes on at once to tell us that he was born to a small hereditary estate, which, according to the tradition of the village where it lies, was bounded by the same hedges and ditches in William the Conqueror's time that it is at present, and has been delivered down from father to son, whole and entire, without the loss or acquisition of a single field or meadow during the space of six hundred years. The writer informs us that he was born a very grave and solemn child, so grave indeed that as his mother had often told him, he threw away his rattle before he was two months old, and would not make use of his coral until they had taken away the bells from it. The gravity and stillness of his youth appear to have been equally remarkable, and at the university he distinguished himself habitually by a most profound silence. Whilst I was in this learned body, I applied myself with so much diligence to my studies that there are very few celebrated books either in the learned or the modern tongues which I am not acquainted with. On the death of his father, this prodigy of thoughtful silence made up his mind to travel into foreign countries, and therefore left the university, 
with the character of an odd, unaccountable fellow that had a great deal of learning if I would but show it. An insatiable thirst after knowledge carried the youth, we are told, into all the countries of Europe, where there was anything new or strange to be seen. We are even further informed, to such a degree was my curiosity raised, that having read the controversies of some great men concerning the antiquities of Egypt, I made a journey to Grand Cairo on purpose to take the measure of a pyramid, and as soon as I had set myself right in that particular, returned to my native country with great satisfaction. This latter illustration of a traveller's tale was understood to be a touch at a then-living author who had published a book bearing the sesquipedalian title of Pyramidographia. The European travels might well be understood to illustrate the tastes and the experiences of Addison himself. The spectator then tells us how he settled down to a life in London, where I am frequently seen in most public places, though there are not above half a dozen of my select friends that know me, of whom my next paper shall give a more particular account. We are told that there was no place of general resort in which he did not make his frequent appearance. Sometimes I am seen thrusting my head into a round of politicians at wills, and listening with great attention to the narratives that are made in those little circular audiences. At other times he enjoyed smoking a pipe at Child's Coffee House, a place of much attraction to which the clergy and especial were apt to resort, as it stood conveniently for them in the immediate neighborhood of St. Paul's Cathedral. There he is careful to tell us he seldom talked to anyone, but contrived to overhear the conversation at every table in the room. I appear on Sunday nights at St. James's Coffee House and sometimes join the little committee of politics in the inner room as one who comes there to hear and improve. His face, he tells us, is very well known likewise at other coffee houses and in the theatres of Drury Lane and the Haymarket. Apparently his especial gift was that of a spectator and of a listener, not a talker, and so little was his motive for frequenting public assemblies understood by those with whom he sometimes silently mingled, that I have been taken for a merchant upon the exchange for above these ten years, and sometimes pass for a Jew in the assembly of stock-jobbers at Jonathan's. In short, wherever I see a cluster of people, I always mix with them, though I never open my lips but in my own club. Thus I live in the world rather as a spectator of mankind than as one of the species, by which means I have made myself a speculative statesman, soldier, merchant, and artisan, without ever meddling with any practical part in life. I am very well versed in the theory of a husband or a father, and can discern the errors in the economy, business, and diversion of others better than those who are engaged in them, as standers-by discover blots which are apt to escape those who are in the game. So much of his personal character and history, the spectator tells us he has felt bound to communicate to his readers in order to let them see that he was not without some qualification for the business he had undertaken. He explains that of late he had begun to blame his own taciturnity, 
and since I have neither time nor inclination to communicate the fullness of my heart in speech, I am resolved to do it in writing, and to print myself out, if possible, before I die. For this reason, he tells his readers, it is his intention to publish a sheet full of thoughts every morning for the benefit of my contemporaries, and if I can any way contribute to the diversion or improvement of the country in which I live, I shall leave it when I am summoned out of it, with the secret satisfaction of thinking that I have not lived in vain. But he declares there are limits to the confidential revelations which he is willing to make to his readers. He positively declines to tell his name, his age, and his lodgings. Such revelations, he explains, would indeed draw me out of that obscurity which I have enjoyed for many years, and expose me in public places to several salutes and civilities, which have been always very disagreeable to me, for the greatest pain I can suffer is the being talked to and being stared at. Then this first essay comes to an end, with the intimation that the work of the spectator is carried on in a club with a number of friends, who are afterwards to be described, that the club meets only on Tuesdays and Thursdays, but that it has appointed a committee to sit every night for the inspection of all such papers as may contribute to the advancement of the public wheel, and he invites all among the outer public who have a mind to correspond with him to direct their letters to the spectator at Mr. Buckley's in Little Britain. This is, in point of fact, the plot of the spectator. Any reader who has gone thus far and only thus far can easily foresee the blending of the real and the imaginary, which makes so much of the charm that belongs to it. The spectator, as he is described by himself in this opening essay, represents and embodies the principal experiences and characteristics of Joseph Addison. An almost unconquerable shyness restricted the ways and movements of Addison in general society, and still more especially in political and public life. Addison, during his career, occupied more than once a commanding position in administrative and parliamentary affairs, but his shy taciturnity rendered it utterly impossible that he could achieve any personal distinction in such fields. One of his only faults, and it was not accounted a fault in those deep-drinking days, consisted in what writers of that time would have described as his devotion to the wine-cup. Macaulay makes this excuse for him, which has charity as well as justice to support it, that wine unlocked the spell under which his fine intellect lay, and gave him some chance of freely expressing his thoughts in the companionship of his fellow-men. Posterity is not likely to censure with too much harshness this one weakness, in a nature otherwise so pure and so exalted, seeing that his love of wine, however it may have helped him to fluency of speech, did not lead him to mar the beauty and accuracy of his unsurpassed literary style. The second number of The Spectator begins to describe the other leading members of this observant club. The first of our society, we are told, is a gentleman of Worcestershire, of an ancient descent, a baronet, his name Sir Roger de Coverley. That name, it is hardly necessary to say, has passed into literary history with the names of Dr. Primrose, Uncle Toby, and Colonel Newcomb. 
His biographer records of him that his great-grandfather was inventor of that famous country dance which is called after him. The Sir Roger de Coverley of the Spectator Club is described as a gentleman that is very singular in his behavior, but his singularities proceed from his good sense and are contradictions to the manners of the world, only as he thinks the world is in the wrong. This humor, however, creates him no enemies, for he does nothing with sourness or obstinacy, and his being unconfined to modes and forms makes him but the readier and more capable to please and oblige all who know him. The more modern reader may be a little surprised to hear that the London home of this well-born country gentleman is in Soho Square. The editor of the edition, published in 1823, thought it necessary even then to explain by a marginal note that at the time of Sir Roger de Coverley's existence, Soho Square was the genteelest part of town. The essay gives us some further insight into the life and character of Sir Roger by telling us that it was said he keeps himself a bachelor by reason he was crossed in love by a perverse, beautiful widow of the next county to him. Before this disappointment, Sir Roger was what you call a fine gentleman, had often supped with my Lord Rochester and Sir George Etheridge, fought a duel upon his first coming to town, and kicked Bully Dawson in a public coffee-house for calling him youngster. Another note in the same edition informs the world, or at least that part of it which came later than Sir Roger's time, that Bully Dawson was a noted sharper, swaggerer, and debauchee about town. He was well known in Blackfriars and its then infamous purlieus. Sir Roger took this hard treatment at the hands of his perverse widow so much to heart that he became very serious for about a year and a half, and although his naturally jovial temperament got the better of him after a while, he always remained careless of his personal appearance and never troubled himself to dress according to the prevailing fashion. He continues to wear a coat and doublet of the same cut that was in fashion at the time of his repulse, which, in his merry humors, he tells us, has been in and out twelve times since he first wore it. At the time when we make his acquaintance, he is, in his fifty-sixth year, cheerful, gay, and hearty, keeps a good house both in town and country, a great lover of mankind, but there is such a mirthful cast in his behavior that he is rather beloved than esteemed. His tenants grow rich, his servants look satisfied, all the young women profess love to him, and the young men are glad of his company. Oddly enough, Sir Roger appears to have some of the peculiarities which Thackeray in his Irish sketches describes as having impressed him in the manners of Father Matthew, the famous apostle of temperance. When he comes into a house, he calls the servants by their names and talks all the way upstairs to a visit. He is a justice of the peace, fills the chair at quarter sessions with great abilities, and three months ago gained universal applause by explaining a passage in the Game Act. Thus we are introduced to the principal figure in the Spectator Club, and the reader has even from this brief description a very clear idea as to the peculiarities and the general character of Sir Roger de Coverley. Some other members of the club are then described, 
over whose likenesses, however, interesting in themselves, we do not need to linger here, and then we come to one whose name, like that of Sir Roger de Coverley, has become classic in our literature. The author of the essay is anxious that the members of the society may not appear a set of humorists unacquainted with the gallantries and pleasures of the age. He therefore thinks it right to tell them that we have amongst us the gallant Will Honeycomb, a gentleman who, according to his years, should be in the decline of life, but having ever been very careful of his person and always had a very easy fortune, time has made but very little impression either by wrinkles on his forehead or traces on his brain. His person is well turned and of a good height. He is very ready at that sort of discourse with which men usually entertain women. He has all his life dressed very well and remembers habits as others do men. He can smile when one speaks to him and laughs easily. He knows the history of every mode and can inform you from which of the French king's wenches our wives and daughters had this manner of curling their hair, that way of placing their hoods, whose frailty was covered by such a sort of petticoat, and whose vanity to show her foot made that part of the dress so short in such a year." as other men of his age will notice to you what such a minister said upon such and such an occasion, he will tell you when the Duke of Monmouth danced at court, such a woman was then smitten, another was taken with him at the head of his troop in the park. In all these important relations, he has ever about the same time received a kind glance or a blow of a fan from some celebrated beauty, mother of the present lord such a one. In this easy and lively way we are introduced to the leading members of the Spectator Club. The reader will meet them again and again as he follows the continuance of the essays. These are the observers who make it their agreeable duty to study the manners and customs of society in town and country and to record, each after his own fashion, his judgment as to the improvement or the deterioration of the men and women the orders and classes who pass under his eyes and provoke his criticism. Each of these students of human nature and human life criticizes from his own point of view, and it need hardly be said that Sir Roger de Coverley and Will Honeycomb do not form a judgment according to the same ethical standard. Each member of the club invites contributions from those with whom he is best acquainted and as every one from the outer world who is fortunate enough to obtain a place for his contribution is certain to make known the proud fact to all his acquaintances, the result is that each succeeding week there are more and more men and women who aspire to give to the world, through the same medium, their ideas as to the behavior of their neighbors in general. Learned divines and even bishops, eminent lawyers, country squires, court ladies, were thus led on to cooperate with the poets and moralists who chiefly conducted the work of the paper. There were many contributions, too, which professed to come from members of various classes, having nothing to do with the world of education or of fashion, from shop assistants, apprentice lads, working girls, rural laborers, a representative of English life as nearly complete as possible, being the great object which the Spectator Club was endeavoring to accomplish. 
some at least of the contributions thus professing to come from the outer fringes of life, were obviously not genuine, and bore visible marks of being ingeniously constructed to serve the occasion. The fashion then still prevailed in literature of giving humorous names to every fictitious character, which left the reader at no trouble to understand the part played in life by that particular personage. A poacher who writes to the spectator signs himself Isaac Hedgeditch. A worthy serving man signs himself Thomas Trusty. A dressy young lady signs herself Alice Bluegarter, and so on through an infinite variety of self-revealing appellations. We have completely outgrown this species of humor in our time, and literature has not lost much by the change, but the habit seems much more tolerable in the pages of the spectator than in those given to the world by writers of a later date, who adopted the mannerism or the trick out of sheer imitation. The spectator was but a small paper, containing its literary matter on two of its pages, and some scraps of news on the other, and each number cost one penny. Many of the essays were noble specimens of the higher criticism, many were weekday sermons of which any pulpit might well be proud, many were short, pathetic, or humorous stories. Whatever men and women were doing furnished matter of observation and comment to the watchful spectator. But a consistent purpose animated and inspired the whole literary work and made it read more like a discursive story than like a series of disconnected essays. The principal figures of the Spectator Club were presenting themselves again and again in the narrative, now describing their own experiences and now recounting the adventures or discussing the humors of their friends, and each acting in turn the part of showman to that particular scene in the life drama which it was his part to introduce. The spectator came to an end, not because its leading conductors might not have carried it on as long as their lives lasted, but for the reason that its work was done, its story was told. It came to an end, in fact, very much as the story of the Pickwick Club came to an end in a later generation, and, as in the case of the Pickwick Club, so in the case of the Spectator, there was a short resumption of its existence before it was allowed to pass wholly into retrospect and into fame. Most readers will think that after the death of Sir Roger de Coverley there could not be much life left in the story of the Spectator Club. Most of those who worked in the project had bright careers still before them and were to win new honors as they went along. But it may fairly be said for the two or three leading men in the immortal literary enterprise that they never won higher fame than that which the world has given to them for their work in The Spectator. During the existence of The Spectator came into force the Act of Parliament which imposed a stamp tax on all printed newspapers. There had already been a duty on paper, vellum, and parchment, and on certain legal documents. The act which imposed these duties belonged to the reign of Charles II, but in the days of Queen Anne such a tax was made for the first time upon newspaper publications. Lord Bolingbroke, as Secretary of State, was understood to have been chiefly responsible for the imposition of this tax, and one of the reasons given for imposing it was said to be 
the necessity of endeavouring to put some restriction on the license displayed by newspaper writers in their criticisms on public men. In February 1712, the Queen sent a message to Parliament in which she directed attention to the false and scandalous libels such as are a reproach to any government, which were then in constant circulation, and she asked her faithful Parliament to find a remedy equal to the mischief. A measure was introduced in the session of that year, the object of which was to impose duties on silks, calicoes, linen, and other articles of ordinary use, and into this measure was put a clause declaring that all newspapers or papers containing public news, intelligence, or occurrences were to pay a tax at the rate of a halfpenny each if printed on half a sheet of paper or a penny if on a whole sheet and not more, and of two shillings a sheet if any audacious publisher were to venture upon starting a newspaper of what would then have been considered an extraordinary size. A tax of a shilling was inflicted by the same measure on every advertisement appearing in any manner of publication which could be liable to the impost already mentioned. This act was passed on June 10, 1712. The act was to come into force on August 1st, and Addison, writing in the Spectator on the day before, described that date as the day on which many eminent authors will probably publish their last words. I am afraid, he goes on to say, that few of our weekly historians who are men above all things who delight in war will be able to subsist under the weight of a stamp and an approaching peace. A sheet of blank paper that must have this new imprimatur clapped upon it before it is qualified to communicate anything to the public will make its way in the world but very heavily. In short, the necessity of carrying a stamp and the improbability of notifying a bloody battle will, I am afraid, both concur to the sinking of those thin folios which have every day retailed to us the history of Europe for several years last past. A facetious friend of mine who loves a pun called this present mortality among authors the fall of the leaf. But Addison also announced that he and his companions in literary work were by no means disposed to give up the field because of the new difficulties put in their way. On the contrary, he declared that he and his colleagues intended to continue the issue of their paper and would meet the tax in the best way they could by charging an additional penny for each number. No, he says, with a light tone of satire in his voice, I shall glory in contributing my utmost to the public wheel, and if my country receives five or six pounds a day by my labors, I shall be very well pleased to find myself so useful a member. The spectator then did not die with the stamp duty, but survived it, and only came to an end, as we have said already, when its story was told. But the stamp duty on newspapers long survived the days of the spectator and continued to interfere with the issue of cheap newspapers for popular circulation down to the time well within the memory of living men when Gladstone carried his famous measure for the abolition of that tax upon knowledge as it was so justly described by the enlightened men who had led the way to his work and lent him their cordial help in its accomplishment. End of section 9